This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 2. Chapter 4. It was six o'clock in the morning when the settlers, after a hasty breakfast, set out to reach by the shortest way the western coast of the island. And how long would it take to do this? Cyrus Harding had said two hours, but of course that depended on the nature of the obstacles they might meet with. As it was probable that they would have to cut a path through the grass, shrubs, and creepers, they marched axe in hand, and with guns also ready, wisely taking warning from the cries of the wild beasts heard in the night. The exact position of the encampment could be determined by the bearing of Mount Franklin, and as the volcano arose in the north at a distance of less than three miles, they had only to go straight towards the southwest to reach the western coast. They set out, having first carefully secured the canoe. Pencroft and Neb carried sufficient provision for the little band for at least two days. It would not thus be necessary to hunt. The engineer advised his companions to refrain from firing, that their presence might not be betrayed to any one near the shore. The first hatchet-blows were given among the brushwood in the midst of some mastic trees, a little above the cascade, and, his compass in his hand, Cyrus Harding led the way. The forest here was composed for the most part of trees which had already been met with near the lake and on Prospect Heights. There were deodars, Douglas firs, casuarinas, gum-trees, eucalypti, hibiscus, cedars, and other trees, generally of a moderate size, for their number prevented their growth. Since their departure, the settlers had descended the slopes, which constituted the mountain system of the island, onto a dry soil, but the luxuriant vegetation of which indicated it to be watered either by some subterranean marsh or by some stream. However, Cyrus Harding did not remember having seen, at the time of his excursion to the crater, any other water-courses but the Red Creek and the Mercy. During the first part of their excursion they saw numerous troops of monkeys who exhibited great astonishment at the sight of men, whose appearance was so new to them. Gideon Spilett jokingly asked whether these active and merry quadrupeds did not consider him and his companions as degenerate brothers. And certainly pedestrians, hindered at each step by bushes, caught by creepers, barred by trunks of trees, did not shine beside those supple animals, who, bounding from branch to branch, were hindered by nothing on their course. The monkeys were numerous, but happily they did not manifest any hostile disposition. Several pigs, agoutis, kangaroos, and other rodents were seen, also two or three koalas, at which Pencroft longed to have a shot. "'But,' said he, "'you may jump and play just now. We shall have one or two words to say to you on our way back.' At half-past nine the way was suddenly found to be barred by an unknown stream, from thirty to forty feet broad, whose rapid current dashed foaming over the numerous rocks which interrupted its course. This creek was deep and clear, but it was absolutely unnavigable. "'We are cut off!' cried Neb. "'No,' replied Herbert. "'It is only a stream, and we can easily swim over.' "'What would be the use of that?' returned Harding. "'This creek evidently runs to the sea. 
let us remain on this side and follow the bank, and I shall be much astonished if it does not lead us very quickly to the coast. Forward. One minute, said the reporter. The name of this creek, my friends. Do not let us leave our geography incomplete. All right, said Pencroft. Name it, my boy, said the engineer, addressing the lad. Will it not be better to wait until we have explored it to its mouth? answered Herbert. Very well, replied Cyrus Harding. Let us follow it as fast as we can, without stopping. Still another minute, said Pencroft. What's the matter? asked the reporter. Though hunting is forbidden, fishing is allowed, I suppose, said the sailor. We have no time to lose, replied the engineer. Oh, five minutes, replied Pencroft. I only ask for five minutes to use in the interest of our breakfast. And Pencroft, lying down on the bank, plunged his arm into the water, and soon pulled up several dozen of fine crayfish from among the stones. These will be good, cried Neb, going to the sailor's aid. As I said, there is everything in this island except tobacco, muttered Pencroft with a sigh. The fishing did not take five minutes, for the crayfish were swarming in the creek. A bag was filled with crustaceae, whose shells were of a cobalt blue. The settlers then pushed on. They advanced more rapidly and easily along the banks of the river than in the forest. From time to time they came upon the traces of animals of a large size who had come to quench their thirst at the stream, but none were actually seen, and it was evidently not in this part of the forest that the peccary had received the bullet which had cost Pencroft a grinder. In the meanwhile, considering the rapid current, Harding was led to suppose that he and his companions were much farther from the western coast than they had at first supposed. In fact, at this hour, the rising tide would have turned back the current of the creek, if its mouth had only been a few miles distant. Now this effect was not produced, and the water pursued its natural course. The engineer was much astonished at this, and frequently consulted his compass, to assure himself that some turn of the river was not leading them again into the far west. However, the creek gradually widened, and its waters became less tumultuous. The trees on the right bank were as close together as on the left bank, and it was impossible to distinguish anything beyond them. But these masses of wood were evidently uninhabited, for Top did not bark, and the intelligent animal would not have failed to signal the presence of any stranger in the neighborhood. At half-past ten, to the great surprise of Cyrus Harding, Herbert, who was a little in front, suddenly stopped and exclaimed, THE SEA! In a few minutes more the whole western shore of the island lay extended before the eyes of the settlers. But what a contrast between this and the eastern coast upon which chance had first thrown them! No granite cliff, no rocks, not even a sandy beach. The forest reached the shore, and the tall trees bending over the water were beaten by the waves. It was not such a shore as is usually formed by nature, either by extending a vast carpet of sand, or by grouping masses of rock, but a beautiful border consisting of the most splendid trees. The bank was raised a little above the level of the sea, and on this luxuriant soil, supported by a granite base, the fine forest trees seemed to be as firmly planted as in the interior of the island. The colonists were then on the shore of an unimportant little harbour, 
which would scarcely have contained even two or three fishing boats. It served as a neck to the new creek, of which the curious thing was that its waters, instead of joining the sea by a gentle slope, fell from a height of more than forty feet, which explained why the rising tide was not felt up the stream. In fact, the tides of the Pacific, even at their maximum elevation, could never reach the level of the river, and doubtless millions of years would pass before the water would have worn away the granite and hollowed a practicable mouth. It was settled that the name of Falls River should be given to this stream. Beyond, towards the north, the forest border was prolonged for a space of nearly two miles. Then the trees became scarcer, and beyond that again the picturesque heights described a nearly straight line, which ran north and south. On the contrary, all the part of the shore between Falls River and Reptile End was a mass of wood, magnificent trees, some straight, others bent, so that the long sea-swell bathed their roots. Now it was this coast, that is, all the Serpentine Peninsula, that was to be explored, for this part of the shore offered a refuge to castaways, which the other wild and barren side must have refused. The weather was fine and clear, and from the height of a hillock on which Neb and Pencroft had arranged breakfast, a wide view was obtained. There was, however, not a sail in sight. Nothing could be seen along the shore, as far as the eye could reach. But the engineer would take nothing for granted until he had explored the coast to the very extremity of the Serpentine Peninsula. Breakfast was soon dispatched and at half-past eleven the captain gave the signal for departure. Instead of proceeding over the summit of a cliff or along a sandy beach, the settlers were obliged to remain under cover of the trees so that they might continue on the shore. The distance which separated Falls River from Reptile End was about twelve miles. It would have taken the settlers four hours to do this on a clear ground and without hurrying themselves, but as it was they needed double the time for what with trees to go round, bushes to cut down, and creepers to chop away, they were impeded at every step, these obstacles greatly lengthening their journey. There was, however, nothing to show that a shipwreck had taken place recently. It is true that, as Gideon Spilett observed, any remains of it might have drifted out to sea, and they might not take it for granted that because they could find no traces of it, a ship had not been cast away on the coast. The porter's argument was just, and besides, the incident of the bullet proved that a shot must have been fired in Lincoln Island within three months. It was already five o'clock, and there were still two miles between the settlers and the extremity of the Serpentine Peninsula. It was evident that after having reached Reptile End, Harding and his companions would not have time to return before dark to their encampment near the source of the Mercy. It would therefore be necessary to pass the night on the promontory. But they had no lack of provisions, which was lucky, for there were no animals on the shore, though birds, on the contrary, abounded. Jacamars, curacoos, tragopans, grouse, lories, parrots, cockatoos, pheasants, pigeons, and a hundred others. There was not a tree without a nest, and not a nest which was not full of flapping wings. Towards seven o'clock, the weary explorers arrived at Reptile End. Here the seaside forest ended, and the shore resumed the customary appearance of a coast, with rocks, reefs, and sands. 
it was possible that something might be found here, but darkness came on, and the further exploration had to be put off to the next day. Pencroft and Herbert hastened on to find a suitable place for their camp. Among the last trees of the forest of the far west, the boy found several thick clumps of bamboos. "'Good,' said he. "'This is a valuable discovery.' "'Valuable,' returned Pencroft. "'Certainly,' replied Herbert. "'I may say, Pencroft, that the bark of the bamboo, cut into flexible laths, is used for making baskets, that this bark, mashed into a paste, is used for the manufacture of Chinese paper, that the stalks furnish, according to their size, canes and pipes, and are used for conducting water, that large bamboos make excellent material for building, being light and strong, and being never attacked by insects. I will add that by sawing the bamboo in two at the joint, keeping for the bottom the part of the transverse film which forms the joint, useful cups are obtained, which are much in use among the Chinese. No, you don't care for that, but—' "'But what?' "'But I can tell you, if you are ignorant of it, that in India these bamboos are eaten like asparagus.' "'Asparagus thirty feet high!' exclaimed the sailor. "'And are they good?' excellent replied herbert only is not the stems of thirty feet high which are eaten but the young shoots perfect my boy perfect replied pencroft i will also add that the pith of the young stalks preserved in vinegar makes a good pickle better and better herbert and lastly that the bamboos exude a sweet liquor which can be made into a very agreeable drink is that all asked the sailor that is all and they don't happen to do for smoking? No, my poor Pencroft. Herbert and the sailor had not to look long for a place in which to pass the night. The rocks, which must have been violently beaten by the sea under the influence of the winds of the southwest, presented many cavities in which shelter could be found against the night air. But just as they were about to enter one of these caves, a loud roaring arrested them. Back! cried Pencroft. Our guns are only loaded with small shot, and beasts which can roar as loud as that would care no more for it than for grains of salt. And the sailor, seizing Herbert by the arm, dragged him behind a rock, just as a magnificent animal showed itself at the entrance of the cavern. It was a jaguar of a size at least equal to its Asiatic congeners. That is to say, it measured five feet from the extremity of its head to the beginning of its tail. The yellow color of its hair was relieved by streaks and regular oblong spots of black, which contrasted with the white of its chest. Herbert recognized it as the ferocious rival of the tiger, as formidable as the puma, which is the rival of the largest wolf. The jaguar advanced, and gazed around him with blazing eyes, his hair bristling as if this was not the first time he had scented men. At this moment, the reporter appeared round a rock, and Herbert, thinking that he had not seen the jaguar, was about to rush towards him, when Gideon Spilett signed to him to remain where he was. This was not his first tiger, and advancing to within ten feet of the animal, he remained motionless, his gun to his shoulder, without moving a muscle. The jaguar collected itself for a spring, but at that moment a shot struck it in the eyes, and it fell dead. Herbert and Pencroft rushed towards the jaguar. Neb and Harding also ran up, 
and they remained for some instants contemplating the animal as it lay stretched on the ground, thinking that its magnificent skin would be a great ornament to the hall at Granite House. "'Oh, Mr. Spillet, how I admire and envy you!' cried Herbert, in a fit of very natural enthusiasm. "'Well, my boy,' replied the reporter, "'you could have done the same.' "'I, with such coolness!' "'Imagine to yourself, Herbert, that the jaguar is only a hare, and you would fire as quietly as possible.' "'That is,' rejoined Pencroft, "'that it is not more dangerous than a hare.' "'And now,' said Gideon Spilett, "'since the jaguar has left its abode, I do not see, my friends, why we should not take possession of it for the night.' "'But others may come,' said Pencroft. "'It will be enough to light a fire at the entrance of the cavern,' said the reporter, "'and no wild beast will dare to cross the threshold.' "'Into the jaguar's house, then,' replied the sailor, dragging after him the body of the animal. While Neb skid in the jaguar, his companions collected abundant supply of dry wood from the forest, which they heaped up at the cave. Cyrus Harding, seeing the clump of bamboos, cut a quantity, which he mingled with the other fuel. This done, they entered the grotto, of which the floor was strewn with bones. The guns were carefully loaded, in case of a sudden attack. They had supper, and then just before they lay down to rest, the heap of wood piled at the entrance was set fire to. Immediately a regular explosion, or rather a series of reports, broke the silence. The noise was caused by the bamboos, which, as the flames reached them, exploded like fireworks. The noise was enough to terrify even the boldest of wild beasts. It was not the engineer who had invented this way of causing loud explosions, for, according to Marco Polo, the Tartars have employed it for many centuries to drive away from their encampments the formidable wild beasts of Central Asia. End of chapter